0: Jesse, I cannot believe we had our first survivor story last week. That was such a crazy twist. What's the story this week? When a fatal shooting occurs only
1: one day after a major family celebration, the police dig into the couple's personal lives and are shocked at what they find and how many high powered individuals are connected. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey, and this is Love Murder.
0: Andy. Hey, Jesse,
1: Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about cheating partners,
0: failed second chances, and love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on Twitter and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. And as always, if you enjoy the show, please love slash murder a five-star
1: rating on your podcast app, subscribe, and review to help new people discover the show. Big old thank you, as usual, to our wonderful listeners for all of your wonderful messages, reviews, and suggestions this week. And this story is coming to us from Urban Explorer 20 on Instagram, who not only sent me the story, but also sent me a recommendation for
0: a book to go with it, which you know I love. It's always so thoughtful, in my opinion.
1: It really is, guys. It's so thoughtful. Like, you can definitely send me any ideas you have, 100%. But it really is an extra mile when somebody's like, oh, look, here's a book, here's a link. And oh, there's an Audible as well. <laughs> I'm like, I could kiss you. I love yeah. you. <laughs> Thank you for so doing bad. all of that work for me. So, today's book that we will be using is A Deadly Affair by Tom Henderson, who we have used before. He was in another Michigan case that we did, Stephen and Tarolyn Grant, which was a great story. Okay, cool. Yes. So, let's get right to it, shall we? We shall. Saturday, August 14th, 1999 was a happy day for the Meissner and Fletcher families. Leanne Fletcher, the youngest daughter of Jack and Gloria Meissner, had only recently found out that she was expecting a second baby with her husband of nearly six years, Mick. The two had had a bumpy road for the last couple years, but they had reconciled three months earlier and they seemed happier than ever. The promise of a new baby was the icing on the cake. How old's the first baby? Their first baby, Hannah, was three years old. Okay,
0: so that's not too different from you.
1: No, we are like two years and four months, and it's, it's a pretty typical age gap. I think a lot of people usually tend to wait
0: two to three years, you know? Yeah, yeah, minus the rocky road for you guys.
1: Yeah, no rocky road. Yeah. (laughs) Unless we're talking about the ice cream, then Rocky Road. After sharing the happy news with Leanne's sister and brother-in-law over a double date, the two couples made a visit over to their parents. There, Mick and Leanne's adorable daughter, three-year-old Hannah, said, I'm going to have a baby brother or sister. They talked like specifically in the book about how cute she was and how she like dropped her R's like that.
0: Oh my gosh. Sounds like a little Boston kid. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Gloria and Jack were delighted. Jack had just traded in his Taurus for a van big enough to cart around a passel of grandkids. The Meissners might have had their qualms about their son-in-law in the past, but all of that was forgotten in the wake of the joyful news. Leanne was an extraordinary mother, and all she'd ever wanted was a pile of kids to love and raise. This was a truly happy occasion. Little did anyone know that one half of this beaming young couple would be dead within 48 hours. A hope for the future ripped away and two families permanently torn apart. The case would take twists and turns revealing diabolical lies and sinful secrets. And the resolution? Some would say that justice was not served. You'll have to tell me what you think at the end, Andy. Ugh, you know I hate that. <laughs> I'm not telling you who thinks that justice has been served, but we'll we'll discuss it. Some people think that maybe the wrong verdict came down, so we'll see. So let's talk about Lee Ann. was born in 1970, the baby of five kids. Her parents were Jack and Gloria, who were neighborhood sweethearts in the suburbs of Detroit, Michigan. Jack worked long hours at the Ford Motor Company, putting in lots of overtime and doing 12-hour shifts six days a week. That is hard work. Wow. That's yeah. a lot. Gloria lovingly watched over the brood with lots of help from the older kids to take care of the sweet and only mildly spoiled baby Leanne. They said that she was basically like everyone's baby because her sisters were all like, you know, 10 years older than her or something, okay. you know? Yep. Yep. So she grew into a happy, pretty, and down-to-earth young woman. Her parents reported that Leanne was an absolutely great kid. She literally never caused them any trouble. One of the most remarkable things about Leanne was her ability to be happy and spread that joy. She was artistic. She was talented at creating ceramics and stained glass. And she sold some of her creations at craft fairs around Detroit. Leanne didn't really have a strong interest in college, so she skipped it to work in telemarketing, a job that she actually excelled at. Later on, she would switch to working as a nail technician, and that paired her love and talent for people as well as art. In 1990, when she was 20, pretty girl next door, Leanne, met handsome 22 year old Mick Fletcher at a Michigan State University Halloween party. Leanne was dressed as the devil and. Oh my Mick God. Fa- <laughs> Mick but famously, sexy devil, right? Of course, sexy devil. When you're 20, every costume is sexy blank. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're like, I'm a sexy nun. sexy braised sexy Sexy vampire I'm a sexy tarantula look at me sexy monkey over here yeah exactly (laughs) yeah so she was a sexy devil and very famously make apparently hit on her by saying well if you're the devil take me to hell stop that's what he said and that locked her in she was sprung so let's talk about this charmer (laughs) Mick was born Michael Fletcher, nicknamed Mick, in October of 1969 to stay-at-home mom Darla and her engineer husband John. Mick was the first of three children. So he is the oldest of three and she's
0: the baby of five. Yeah.
1: He had a younger middle sister named Amy and the youngest baby was a boy named Ben. The Fletcher kids grew up on five bucolic acres in a small town an hour north of Detroit and had a pretty ideal, if kind of sheltered, upbringing. The family was religious and super-duper close. Sister Amy even accomplished a small amount of fame as a teenage Christian singer. Oh, wow. Yeah, she, like, went to Nashville. She recorded a couple albums. She, like, did, like, church tours, so. But they seemed really grounded because she was just an exceptional singer, and they talked about how— At one point in her like late teens or early 20s, they were like very much supporting her getting out of her record contract because she was like, I kind of just want to be a young person. I'm tired of this. And they were like, yeah, do it. Let's let's drop that completely, you know?
0: Yeah. And it's like she's a Christian rock singer. She's not like rock and roll. Exactly. So they were like a very sweet and supportive
1: family. The younger siblings absolutely adored Mick. He was apparently a natural prankster, and he was just like kind of organically smart, and he had a a huge love of reading. He in fact taught his siblings how to read, just as he someday would teach his daughter Hannah. So Mick worked at Pizza Hut throughout high school, and he got super great grades. After graduating from high school in 1988, he went to a local community college before transferring to Michigan State University, which is where he met lovely Leanne in 1990. So, Leanne and Mick hit it off immediately, and a whirlwind romance sparked. Both families were initially delighted by the match. Leanne had always had a penchant for grungy, long haired rocker types. So, the family (laughs) felt like clean cut, handsome college boy Mick was a welcome change. And Leanne sometimes surprised Mick's conservative family by joking about their apparently fantastic sex life. But for the most part, she was just this breath of fresh air, and, and clearly a very joyful person to be around.
0: Wait, she would make jokes about their sex life to his parents?
1: Well, to his sister,
0: I guess. Okay. Okay. And his sister's
1: like, I don't want to know what your sex life is. Like, no, 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 no. <laughs> I was gonna Which say. is such a thing, though, that my family would do. You know my family would do that. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's probably off-putting for a majority of family members to talk about their children's or sibling's sex life, but the Prey family is just like nothing is ever personal between us, and there's like a lot of body ribbing going on, you know?
0: It's balls to the wall.
1: It is the Prey family. It's balls to the wall. Andy comes to visit, and you get it too.
0: Yes. <laughs> no one is spared. No one.
1: So uh, almost three years after meeting, the couple got married in his family's church on September 18th, 1993. They had a beautiful honeymoon in Jamaica, and the couple was just about as happy as they could be. Mick enrolled in law school at University of Detroit Mercy, and he worked part-time at Radio Shack to help pay the bills. Leanne switched over to being a nail technician, and this was a position that she was not only really great at, but a lot of people remarked that she made a huge difference in people's lives. Like, you could go in for an appointment having the worst day of your life and somehow just spending, you know, that hour with her while she was working on your nails would completely turn your disposition around.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So the
1: first wobbles in this relationship began to appear around the time Mick graduated from law school. So by this time, Hannah had just been born. So it should have been a really exciting time for the couple because, you know, obviously they have a new child. He's graduating from law school. But Leanne and her family were beginning to feel like Mick was acting like he was too good for Leanne now that he was an attorney. And this feeling intensified when the family attended a swearing-in ceremony to the state bar, and Mick failed to thank his wife or mention his baby daughter while every other new attorney mentioned their partner or family. Not cool. I would
0: definitely feel like that was a slap in the face. Yes, especially if everyone else had. Like, if no one else had, you can thank your wife on your own terms. Like, maybe that's just, like, what you do. But if everyone else is up there saying, this would not have been possible without the support of my partner, and then you don't say shit, that's insane. Well, it
1: gets even worse because he did thank somebody else. He thanked a woman who was a judge named Dawn Gruenberg. And yes, she was his mentor, but she was also, in general, incredibly rude to Leanne. And Leanne even suspected that they were having an affair. So for the fact that they were might they have
0: been, were they I mean, I'm
1: not going to tell you. It might be a surprise later. <laughs> were, they? were they? Were they?
0: Were they? Don Gruber. Gruenberg. <laughs> <laughs> is that your? Is that your? Your. Thoughtful nickname
1: for her, Gruber. Is that the best you yeah, can let's do? let's just do Don Goober. <laughs> All right. So anyway, there was some suspicion. Nothing was ever proven, at least uh-huh. not at this point. Okay? okay. In December of 1997, the couple sat next to another young judge, a woman named Susan Chernowski, and her husband at a Christmas party. Leanne took a great liking to Susan and the two apparently chatted all night about their mutual dislike for Don Gruenberg. Nothing kind of bonds you to somebody than having like a mutual dislike for somebody no, else.
0: seriously. Especially like that my favorite is when you've never like really spoken out loud about it and then you get to like just like open the floodgates.
1: <laughs> oh, well, somebody makes like a remark and your eyebrows go up and you make eye you're contact like- and you're like, oh, let's talk some shit now. This is going down. <laughs>
0: Let's refill our drinks first.
1: Exactly. So Leanne definitely felt like she had an ally in Sue, and she looked forward to the two couples socializing more. So when Mick took a side job setting up Susan's computers and entertainment system, Leanne was happy about that. However, by the next spring, Leanne was becoming less than enthused about the situation. Mick was spending more time over at Susan's, and Susan's marriage was starting to fall apart, and none of that extra money was actually materializing, so she's like, what the hell is he doing over there, you know? Oh my god. Uh huh. In May of 1998, Leanne told her friends that Mick had started making negative comments about Dawn. Now, normally, this reversal of affection would have made Leanne happy, but Mick claimed that he was going to stop working for Dawn because she had been angry with him for associating with Susan. Dawn had implied that their association didn't look good to the court. So now Leanne is like, uh, okay, where there's smoke, there's fire. Are you just having an affair with Susan now? You know? Oh my God. Again, she couldn't prove anything. So the two ended up arguing about this as well. And it it really, like this suspicion and his potential infidelity was like super poisoning the relationship. So they ended up fighting so badly that Mick ended up moving out for a few weeks. But at the end of July of 1998, Mick ended up moving back in and the couple reconciled. But even the same month that they reconciled, Mick apparently drunkenly told a friend of Leanne's that the only reason they were staying together was for Hannah. That's so cruel. It's so cruel. It's also, don't say it to her friend. If you want to say something like that to your friends privately, that's one thing. But you know it's going to get back to her and just hurt her, you know? Yeah, that's so childish. This pattern continued to play out for the better part of the next year. The couple would fight. Mick would leave. After a few weeks, they would reconcile and the cycle would start all over again. Apparently, Mick just pulled disappearing acts. Like they would fight and Leanne would be like, no, like let's stay. Let's talk about this. Let's keep working it out. Let's keep fighting through this because, you know, we have a kid. And he would just like move out. He would just disappear.
0: Well, it's a lot easier for him to sleep around when he's not having to make up excuses to his wife. Exactly. Exactly.
1: (laughs) I don't want to give anything away, but maybe exactly that.
0: Maybe exactly. (laughs)
1: Yeah. So she just kept taking him back because she had had such a happy home with her two parents and her siblings and she wanted more children and she wanted her daughter to have two married parents like so desperately, even though she like her needs weren't really being met in this situation. So in January of 1999, Mick moved out once more, and this time he actually filed for divorce. Okay. Leanne's parents gave her money for her own divorce attorney, and her family and friends totally rallied around her. Between January and April of 1999, Leanne, though heartbroken, began to thrive in her new single life. It was only a few months, but she lost weight. She began taking better care of herself. She began prioritizing her own happiness and well-being rather than his. She seemed happier, and she even tried, like, dating a little bit. But when Mick noticed how great Leanne was doing and how happy she was, he crawled back once more in April of 1999. Gross. Yeah, he promised up and down to be the husband that she truly deserved, and the couple decided to put their issues behind them and build a better future for their small family. On Thursday, August 12th of that same year, Leanne got a positive pregnancy test and was stunned. This was not a planned pregnancy. Uh Though the last couple of years had been a roller coaster, she truly loved Mick and was overjoyed to have a second child. Though it was early, she broke the news to her sister only two days later, telling her that she was about three to four weeks along. And then, of course, she shared the exciting information with her parents which is what I was outlining at the beginning of the story, who were absolutely delighted despite the couple's rocky past. So that Saturday night, when, you know, adorable Hannah tells them that she's getting a baby brother, or sister, everyone's like so happy. And Mick is like, hey, why don't we take you guys to Outback Steakhouse tomorrow to celebrate? Which was like a really big deal, like in their area, I guess, the Outback was kind of new so it was like the new cool thing to do you know
0: yeah awesome blossom
1: yeah is it an awesome blossom or a blooming onion
0: oh I thought it was an awesome blossom
1: I don't know which one it is but they were the ones who started it I'm pretty sure right yeah Outback yeah Outback so yeah, yeah dude, nothing it was like says-
0: Australian you know it was like foreign and like way far away <laughs> They were going. Yeah,
1: they down even under. talked. They've even talked about at the dinner. And Jack is like, oh, like a real like American man's man who like worked at Ford's Motor Company and drinks a Budweiser and and he was like, that's not a Detroit accent, so it's like not. disregard exactly. anything I just said. I can't even do it. I'm Michigander. What I was trying to say is like he was just a real American man's man. And he's like, he was drinking this Foster's beer. I don't even know if that's beer. What is that? Came in a giant can. Like talking about yeah, it's what, Australian. <laughs> beer yes. hilarious talking about what mick was drinking at the outback steakhouse <laughs> nothing says baby number two like a bloomin' onion uh so yeah or an awesome blossom we will find out by the time the show <laughs> airs you don't have to come at us guys because we didn't know the correct name for a fried vidalia onion
0: <laughs> it's so good though how do they do it
1: i don't know it's pretty and delicious Oh, How so often good. did you get that? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> so everyone had a really nice time the next night. So that's Sunday night at the Outback Steakhouse. And when they were leaving, Mick pulled Jack aside, like, in the parking lot. And he was like, hey, is there a chance that you and Gloria can babysit Hannah the following morning? So this would be sometime during Monday. Because he wanted to take Leanne to the firing range. Okay. Now, Jack was a little surprised by this as – Leanne was actually frightened of guns. Yeah, and she's pregnant. He was, and she's that's a, a bizarre activity for somebody who doesn't like guns. Like, I'm sure there's plenty of gun enthusiasts who went shooting plenty during their pregnancy. But this is a woman who actively does not like guns. Yeah. So that was weird. And then Jack also thought it was weird because he had never asked them to babysit ever before. Like, Gloria and Jack did a lot of babysitting for Hannah, but it was always through their daughter. Their daughter was the one who asked, you know? Okay. So he's like, that's weird that Mick's asking me this. But regardless, he had just retired from his job. And so he was home more. And the whole point of being home more was so he could see his grandkids. So he's like, of course, of course, bring her over, pick her up when you're done. So the next morning, Mick left early to do a couple hours worth of work. And he returned around 1030 a.m. At this time, he presented Leanne with this very nice card. So apparently, he had made some jokes about wishing for a boy this time. And it had upset Leanne because she, of course, would be happy with no matter what sex of the child
0: they got. Yeah. And that's just like a lot, like that's just puts a lot of pressure on the woman, too. It's like, what? If it's not a boy, are you not going to support me the whole pregnancy and like during labor? And ugh. I do think it's also really funny, too, when. the mother
1: gets blamed when it's actually the guy's X or Y chromosome that decides the sex
0: of the baby. (laughs) Yeah, the whole thing is so stupid.
1: Yeah. So anyway, she had been upset about this. So he presented Leanne with this card to apologize for suggesting he might have only wanted a boy. The card read, Leanne, I might not always tell you, but you mean the world to me. I love you so much, sweetheart. And girl or boy, so long as they are part of you, our children will all be beautiful. Leanne was delighted by this card and she had been actually on the phone with her sister when he came and gave it to her. So she read this out loud to her sister and was like, isn't that sweet? It's so nice. So after that, the couple piled Hannah into the car to drop her off at her grandparents. Gloria, like Jack, had been surprised by the venue choice of their outing and pulled Leanne aside to ask her why on earth they were going to a firing range when she had not only a lack of interest in firearms, but an active dislike for them. Leanne said, according to Gloria, Mick wants to teach me to shoot in case I ever need to use the gun. And he's been so good lately. I just want to keep him happy. Ugh. So at this point, Gloria's joking and she says, "Mm, Mick didn't take out an extra insurance policy on you, did he? And Leanne laughed, Oh, mom, he's not going to shoot me. Those were the last words that Gloria would ever hear her daughter speak. Did he shoot her? Well, that remains a mystery. He's obviously saying he didn't, but let's get into it. What happened that day? So, here's some of what we do know to be true Leanne and Mick arrived at the double action range a few minutes before noon and only stayed for about maybe 15 to 20 minutes. The head of security noticed Leanne shooting a 45 and he could tell right away that it was too powerful for the small woman who was clearly not proficient at shooting and that she looked rather uncomfortable, like, holding or handling the weapon at
0: all. Oh, my God.
1: Yeah, it wasn't surprising that they left so soon. Even Mick said, like, Leanne wasn't having a good time. That's why we only stayed for a little while. After leaving, Mick said that the couple wanted to take advantage of having a babysitter for a little while and sneak in a quickie before they had to pick up Hannah. So instead of going back to Jack and Gloria's, they returned to their own house around 1230, 1235 in the afternoon. Now, what happened next would be not only tragic, but also highly disputed. According to Mick, Leanne went to the bathroom when they got home. She used the bathroom, washed her hands, and she took off her shorts and underpants, like in preparation to have sex, right? Okay. He said that at the point that she was in the bathroom, he had been attempting to load the gun for some reason. Why?
0: Really, why? Yeah. You're going to have a quickie. Why are you loading a gun? Yeah, it seems
1: bizarre why you would load a gun. After you got home from the shooting range. What is going on? And so he says when she came out of the bathroom, he needed to use the bathroom. So he went into it, but he said, see if you can like load that gun while I'm in the bathroom. What? Yeah. So he goes into the bathroom and by the time he closes the door, he heard, of course, a thunderous bang. Now, he assumed, he would later say in interviews, that when he heard the shot go off, he in no way assumed that his wife was dead. He assumed that she had been like kind of futzing around with it and maybe shot a hole in the wall or something and he was going to have to fix it or, you know, damage some furniture. So he was actually kind of annoyed as he like opened the door and went to go see Leanne. And instead, he was devastated to discover his wife on the ground shot to death. Apparently from her own hand. That's what he thinks. So the medical examiner would later find that Leanne was shot in the right ear, her brainstem severed, and that she was most likely dead before she even hit the ground. By the time Mick said he discovered her body, there was already a thick pool of blood around Leanne. At 12.48 p.m., Mick called 911 and hysterically reported that his wife had shot herself. So the operator told him to see if she was still alive, like by taking her pulse. He reported that she was not. And then the operator said, do not touch anything. You know, basically remove yourself from the scene because we don't want you to contaminate it, you know? So Mick stepped outside to smoke a cigarette and that is how the responding officer found him when they arrived only four minutes later at 12.52 PM. Wow. That's amazing. That's so fast.
0: That is so fast. That always makes me so happy whenever you say that and I do the math and that's like so fast. Incredibly fast.
1: So Detective Tom Kleeman got to the scene and he was immediately suspicious of Mick. Number one, he noticed that Mick had no visible blood on him. So he said this is Tom Cleman said that he had recently watched a special on the history channel about the assassination of JFK and when JFK was shot Jackie like threw herself on him like embracing him and holding yeah. him and like yeah. trying to revive him yeah. and so as a result she was like head to toe covered in blood
0: yeah i remember yep. like all of the, it's haunts me those details Exactly. So
1: he's thinking. He's looking at this guy who doesn't have any blood on him, and he's like, "Why wouldn't his first reaction have been to go and try to revive her, hold her, grab her, talk to her, like, yep. embrace her? You know, like I know that that would be even before nine one one. I would be like down on the ground holding Nathaniel, trying to figure out what happened and if he was yep. okay. Yeah, I would be so covered in blood they would have thought I did it. <laughs> you know, so that that's like." number 1 he's like that's weird then he also noted that the scene seemed staged in his opinion that first of all the gun was laying away from leanne's hand which he said and he, and there's also the guys there's a forensic files episode about this that i watched too and he said on this forensic files episode that when people kill themselves usually they just drop still holding the gun like it's something that happens like it's possible that it falls away from you but usually it just it happens so fast and what happens to your body you're still holding it in some capacity yeah and so he said in all the suicides that he had investigated they like nine times out of ten were still holding the gun and so he's like that's weird it was kind of far away from her hand a little bit and more than that was that there was blood under the gun but not on the gun So it's like the blood was already there. It was already coming out of her body when somebody placed the gun on top of the blood.
0: Ooh, ooh, that gives me chills.
1: Also, he thought that the timing of this firing range visit seems sketchy as hell. Like we talked about, why would you take your pregnant wife there if she's somebody who doesn't particularly like guns or even somebody who actively fears them, as her parents would later say, to a gun range? And why would you also only stay for 15 to 20 minutes?
0: And why are you having her, like, change the – or load the – I don't even know how to say it because I also, yeah. you know, am so against guns. But why are you going to have her, like, loading the gun when you guys are, like, going home to, like, mess around? Like, that's your for Yeah, it's – Like,
1: what it's are, the, are you talking about? There's not, like, target practice in your home. Why would you need to room? load the – Yeah. It's very confusing. And so he's like, well, this guy is a defense attorney. He's probably really smart. And, you know, one reason to get your – wife and a gun in her hands that other people saw is so she has gunpowder residue on her hands. (gasps) So later you can say she shot herself because look, there's gunpowder residue. Oh my God. Diabolical, right? Yes. And that makes sense. That makes sense that he would set this up because otherwise it doesn't really make sense why he would take her to a gun range. Oh my God. That's so horrible, Jesse. Yeah. So the detectives are like, this guy is super, super duper sketch, and we are already on to him. Meanwhile, Leanne's parents were notified of the shooting, and Gloria immediately said to her husband, Oh my God, Jack, he shot her. Like, she, they said there's been an accident. We need you to come down to the station. And she knew even before that, because they had been at the range, that he had shot her. She assumed that he had shot her at the range, of course. So, they went to the police station where they were informed that Leanne had not survived the shooting. And they were told Mick's versions of events. Because, of course, they're like, what happened? And the police just relayed what Mick had said. And Gloria was like, oh no, oh no, I don't buy this for a second. She looked directly at the officer and said, that son of a bitch
0: killed her. Wow.
1: So, at that, uh, yeah, she was very forceful. At that point, The officer looked at her and was like, would you like to make a written statement because you seem to feel strongly about this? And she's like, "Uh uh-huh. Yes, I would. And uh, this is what her statement said. Leanne and Mick had a rocky relationship for the last two years. Mick has left three or four times but always talked her into taking him back. She is a loving mother and wife. She suspected he was having an affair but could never prove it. He turned from a loving husband after the first few years into a cold and distant person. He wanted to file for divorce, he did, and then we loaned her the money for a lawyer. The day he was served, he started sending her flowers again and wanted her to take him back, and he said he had changed. So out of consideration for their daughter, Hannah, she gave him one more chance. He has went overboard on the loving husband routine. And when he asked us to watch Hannah for one hour today while he showed her how to shoot a gun, I said to her before they left, Leanne, has he taken out a new insurance policy on you? And she laughed and said, Mother, he isn't going to shoot me. He was trained at a police academy and can handle guns. This was no accident.
0: Wow. Gloria.
1: Gloria, bring it. So- the police are extra suspicious now. Like, they had immediately a gut reaction that this guy was suspicious. The f- The scene made him look suspicious. He made himself look suspicious. And now the victim's family is saying, this is not an accident. Do not believe him. And think about how different that is than our last episode where Mary Joe's family was, like, going to bat for Joey, you know?
0: Yeah. And they. I feel like they were doing that because that was what Mary Joe wanted as well. She was, yes. like, continually standing by her man, you know? But this is, yeah, he obviously had been fucking up for years before. So did he take out an insurance policy on her?
1: No, there was no insurance policy. I think there was like maybe a a very normally placed one with a low amount that had been around for years, but there was no, there was nothing that was like a blockbuster all of a sudden this is a motive reason.
0: I mean, he wouldn't have done that anyway because he knows that that would have been a red flag in the trial.
1: Yeah, there was no like big outstanding new insurance policy at
0: all. But
1: the police were like even more suspicious when the medical examiner determined through stippling that the gun was 12 to 18 inches away from Leanne's ear at an incredibly awkward angle. So basically, in order to shoot herself in the ear from 12 to 18 inches away, given how her arms were not especially long... She literally would have had to have the gun, like, stretch your arm out all of the way and try to turn your hand as if you were going to fire into your ear. There's, like, no way you can fire a gun like that. Furthermore, there was no blood mist on her hands, which would have indicated the blowback uh, that she, if she shot herself, you know, it would have come from her head, obviously. Yeah. So the medical examiner at that point who is a doctor named Dr. Lubisa Dragovic determined oh. yeah he's also a character he's also on the forensic files. You know I love
0: forensic files.
1: It's so calming. It's just so relaxing. And that guy's voice is so good. Section. But it was on forensic files. He's a real piece of work. He's a really interesting guy. They talk about him a lot also in the Tom Henderson book.
0: Who the forensic files guy?
1: Dr. Lubisa Dragovic. Oh, okay. Okay, okay. Yeah.
0: So there's
1: no blood mist. And with those factors and some others, of course, the medical examiner determined that the death was a homicide by gunshot. And of course, Mick's the only person that was present. He's not saying like somebody snuck in and shot her. He's trying to say she shot herself. So if the medical examiner says it's a homicide and you're the only one around,
0: kind of connect the dots. Yeah. So, Leanne also had
1: live sperm inside of her, which led the police to believe that Mick had had sex with Leanne before he shot her. Wow. Which is
0: so disgusting. Rude.
1: Yep. Yep, yep, yep. Furthermore, the right sleeve of Mick's shirt, which they had confiscated, had tiny pinpricks of high velocity blood mist. Exactly the type that they were looking for and didn't find on Leanne's hands. Exactly the type you'd get if you shot somebody in the head. Additionally, they found blood in the sink consistent with somebody with blood on their hands washing them off. So oh, they found bro, it in the sink. Oh, you
0: did not cover this shit well.
1: Yeah, they also made a note that the cordless phone that he used to call 911 did not have any blood on it, which would be consistent with somebody who washed their hands before calling 911. To really put a nail in Mick's coffin, the police also found a folder that they believe revealed motive. In the folder, they found Hallmark cards, love letters, poems, and photos of Judge Susan Chernowski. One particularly terrible poem needs to be shared with y'all.
0: Oh my god! 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 Wait, he wrote them for her. It's from Susan.
1: This one's from Susan. Later on we're going to get into some romantic emails that he sent which we'll read his words to her which are it's just so cringe altogether, but this was special. Also, as we enter the holiday season, it's seasonally appropriate how bad this poem is.
0: I'm really excited.
1: Also, this is a love poem she's writing him and she wrote it on State of Michigan 37th District Court letterhead to Mick. With all my love, please forgive the massacre of this classic poem, "'Twas the night after Christmas." <laughs>
0: oh, my God. Oh, my God.
1: "'Twas the night after Christmas, and all through the home, not a creature was stirring, but my mind was a roam. Pretty garlands were hung by the chimney with care. I admired the stereo wires my love put
0: there. Oh. Oh, my God.
1: I nestled myself all snug in my bed while visions of him still danced in my head. Till what did my wondering ears did hear? But the sound of my pager drawing me near. Oh, with
0: a, oh my God.
1: With a little old message so lively and quick, I knew in a minute it must be Sir Mick. <gasps> oh, she did not. He did. Oh, she did. More rapid than eagles, his pages they came. He told me he loved me, and I felt the same. His eyes, how they twinkle. His voice makes me sigh. His chest, very sexy. His smile puts a sparkle in my eye.
0: Okay, his dro- that did not. That rhythm didn't work in that last line.
1: I know she was really forcing that one. Forcing. Yeah,
0: it. yeah. You could have taken out a word or, or like even a syllable, and it would have been way better, Susan.
1: I'm glad that she didn't quit her day job as a judge to Seriously.
0: To become a poet you know? or a
1: stationary curator. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> his droll little mouth and his lips not to miss and the bump underneath them that I like to kiss.
0: You no, are. he's
1: not Santa, no reindeer in flight, but he is my Sir Michael, my own special knight. He gave me a gift much better than a toy. It is the lesson of faith for true love and joy. His pages are all I can have on this night. I love you, baby.
0: This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. The best way to think about therapy is through a bunch of analogies. We get our cars tuned up to prevent bigger issues down the road. You saw that one coming.
1: (laughs) Yep. And we get annual
0: checkups and go to the gym to maintain physical wellness and prevent injury and disease. We do chores regularly. Well, some of us do avoid a giant mess of a house and roaches. Gross. And you're definitely the (laughs) chore doer in this duo. I am
1: indeed. Going to therapy is like all of the above. It's routine maintenance for your mental and emotional
0: wellness to prevent bigger issues down the road. Going to therapy doesn't mean something's wrong with you. It means you're investing in yourself to keep your mind healthy. BetterHelp is customized
1: online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist.
0: So you don't even have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. Why invest in everything else and not your mind? This podcast is sponsored by
1: BetterHelp. And Love Murder listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com lovemurder. That's betterhel dot com slash lovemurder. Imagine you're in a plane flying over the Andes. You notice that the wings of the aircraft are getting dangerously
0: close to the snowy peaks. And then, in an instant, everything changes. From Wandery, Against the Odds, Plane Crash in the Andes is an all-new season that looks at the unbelievable survival story of a terrifying plane crash and the passengers' grueling fight to stay alive. The plane, which carried an Uruguayan
1: rugby team and their fans, crashed in the high Andes. The 32 survivors must battle sub-zero temperatures and razor-thin air while they wait for rescuers to arrive.
0: But then, as days pass, they realize no rescue is coming. They are on their own in this frigid and desolate landscape.
1: How will they keep themselves alive without food, water, or warm clothing, and with no means of
0: contacting the outside world? This season of Against the Odds, Plane Crash in the Andes is the unbelievable story of their unlikely survival. Oh, man, Andy, this
1: is a nightmare (laughs) scenario. Seriously. (laughs) (laughs) And as you know, I spend a lot of time in Uruguay. We even had my wedding there. We did, yes. So this story is obviously incredibly famous there. Hearing it retold in Against the Odds in this
0: new season was such an amazing way to experience this truly remarkable tale. Now you can listen to Against the Odds on Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, or you can listen ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. Wondery. Feel the story. Like, you're married.
1: Yeah. They were both married at the time of this
0: poem. You're spending time thinking about that and then writing. And then, like, there's one thing about thinking about it and then, like, to write it down. Well, I read
1: this to Nathaniel and his brother
0: out loud because Alex is staying with us right
1: now. And Nathaniel (laughs) said, oh, so there's two murders in this story. The second is literature and classic poetry.
0: Wow. Yeah. So
1: they find this, and they're like, you know what? I think we're just going to take these computers as well and see what these lovebirds might have been emailing each other as well, you know? So who is Susan? Susan was a young, bright, good-looking judge from a politically connected family. Her dad, Robert, had been the chief judge of the Macomb County Circuit Court. Her brother was a county commissioner, and her sister was also an attorney. Wow. With Susan's brains, family connections—yeah, super connected— and ability to schmooze, it's no wonder that she had succeeded. Suzanne had become a judge only three years out of law school. Whoa. I thought you were going to say schmoozan. (laughs) Schmoozan. I think think that's better than Don Goover, by the way. (laughs) Schmoozan. So a political observer and consultant said that Susan didn't just have a good reputation. She had a sterling one. The only blight on Susan's perfect life had been her divorce in September 1998. But oh boy, was a new biggie about to be revealed with this. Not only had Susan had an affair with Mick, she had also tossed cases his way that she then presided over. What?
0: Yeah, so. Don't Conflict of interest, much. Like, come on. Yeah, I guess there
1: was even like. Some email that they later discovered, too, where she was like, ooh, if you, like, do this thing in bed or something, I'll toss a case your way, you know? Ugh, gross. So that's all really bad. And now they even began to suspect her and Leanne's murder. They were like, okay, maybe Mick didn't actually do it. Maybe Suzanne was lying in wait and she shot Leanne. Maybe Mick was covering for his lover, you know? So at that point, they're like, she could be somebody that we have to seriously look in. But she did have an airtight alibi. So there was no way. Yeah, she did not. She was not the person that pulled the trigger, even though it seemed that she could have been the person who inspired the murder. In her police interview, Susan regretfully confirmed the affair that had been going on. When the police asked her if she'd been aware that Leanne was pregnant, Susan was shocked Mick had told her repeatedly that he and Leanne were just going through the motions for Hannah and that they were no longer intimate at all. (gasps) Oh, no. In fact, Susan had told Mick that she could not continue the relationship with him if he was still having sex with Leanne, which, of course, added another layer to the potential motive behind Leanne's murder. The plot was about to thicken, though, because shortly after interviewing Leanne's friends and reviewing Mick's emails, the police realized that Mick had been having affairs with not one, but two judges. Wow. He is a type. Yes. He totally does. He really does. Mick also had been sleeping with Judge Don Grunberg for some time, but the affair had eventually stopped when Don suspected that Mick was sleeping with Susan. This is some, like, real messy high-level drama from the people who are, like, making decisions about whether people go away for, like, life in prison and stuff.
0: Yeah. This is, like, annoying. Yeah. When interviewed by the
1: police, Dawn confirmed that she had had an affair with Mick and that it had been inconsequential and short-lived. She said it was simply for sexual enjoyment and not an intimate affair. She was like, he's a fuckboy. I, like, was getting down on it for a while, but he's kind of an asshole. Dawn said that she was not friendly with Mick anymore because she had grown tired of how he used people. She also said that he was a heavy drinker who couldn't handle his alcohol and became an embarrassing drunk. Go in, Dawn.
0: Yeah. (gasps) Yes.
1: Furthermore, she said that Mick was also a bad attorney who had botched her sister-in-law's custody case when she tried to help him get work. So... Dawn had apparently sent that same sister-in-law to Leanne's nail salon to arrange a meeting so Don could come clean about their affair, but also throw Mick under the bus for his affair with Susan. But Leanne hated Dawn so much that she refused to meet with her. Okay. So I guess Dawn had tried to tell her about this. She concluded that the Susan affair was open knowledge among court employees and that she would characterize Mick as sexually aggressive, but not violent. Okay. So yeah, that affair did not end well. And also, what do you, what are you thinking when this is a judge that you might have to try a case in front of and she's this angry with you?
0: Yeah. Aren't you supposed to always be like on the good side of judges? Like not in that way, like not in between their legs, but like on their good side. Apparently, he just kept
1: thinking he could just keep doing it with, I mean, at some point, you're going to run out of female judges. (laughs) I don't know what to tell you. So based on the forensic evidence, Mick Fletcher was arrested for first-degree murder less than a week after the shooting. Three-year-old Hannah had lost both parents and was placed temporarily in Jack and Gloria's custody. Mick hired a really good defense attorney by the name of Brian Leggio. And Brian needs to prove that the medical examiner was wrong and that the shooting was indeed accidental. So before Leanne was laid to rest, the defense hired an independent pathologist to do another post-mortem. Okay. So they hired famous Dr. Warner Spitz, who had testified at the O.J. Simpson trial. And he determined that it was inconclusive that Leanne had died of homicide he felt that it was entirely possible that she could have died by her own hand. So this will come up in a different medical examiner's report. But he was saying you can't say it's impossible because if you do stretch her arm out, she could have pulled the trigger with her thumb. Like, I mean, who would do that,
0: though? No, seriously. Especially when they're pregnant and, like, don't like guns in the first place. Why are you going to point it at yourself?
1: Yeah, exactly. That seems like a weird way to handle a gun, you know, facing your head. So they get Warner Spitz to say that it's entirely possible that she could have shot herself. So they cannot conclusively rule that it is a homicide. Now, this was really exciting because Spitz was very, very well known, as was Dr. Dragovic. And Dr. Spitz had actually trained Dr. Dragovic. Okay. So when the media finds out that Warner Spitz is saying something completely different and they're refuting the medical testimony completely, they're like, this is going to be a great showdown in the trial. So everyone's looking forward to this. But apparently well, like, courting the media and kind of making jokes with them, Werner Spitz was responding to criticism that he was just a gun for hire for the defense. Like, basically, the defense was paying him to say this. That's what they were saying. And he, instead of just saying, no, these are my findings independently, you know, they paid me for it, but, like, this is what I found, he said, like, as a joke, he'd, quote, dance naked on top of a table for a thousand bucks. What? Like, he was joking about what he would do to get money. He's like, sure, call me a gun for hire, you know? I'd dance naked on a tabletop for a thousand bucks, you know? And obviously, this looked terrible for the defense. So now the defense attorney has to go out and find another (laughs) expert pathologist who will say basically the same thing in trial because they can't use that guy because it'll come up in trial that he said that, you know? Oh, my God. On September 29th, 1999, a preliminary hearing was held to determine if there was enough evidence against Mick to proceed to trial. Dr. Lubisa Dragovic testified that Leanne's death had been murder, concluding that a self-inflicted gunshot wound was impossible in this case. The evidence was everything that I've talked to you about. The stippling that indicated that the gun had been at least 12 to 18 inches from her head, that no blood mist appeared on her hands. David Woodford, a blood spatter expert in the Michigan State Crime Lab, testified that he determined that Leanne had been shot well on the floor with her head nearly a foot from the bed and 14 to 18 inches off the floor. They both discussed the finding of the fresh sperm in her vagina. So the prosecution is basically telling a story of a cheating villain who shot his pregnant wife, In the head, directly after having sex with her, because think about it, she is found with no bottoms on and fresh sperm inside of her, and they believe the position she was in when he shot her was, like, doggy style. She was on her hands and knees. Oh,
0: my God. So he could have shot her while having sex.
1: He could have shot her while they just finished. I mean, when he just finished, obviously— I mean, it
0: it could be
1: completely consistent with how he could have shot her. So, obviously, this is extremely disturbing, you know, to think about that that was potentially her last moments and how callous he is. And then they say that the blood in the sink means that he then, after doing that, pulled his pants up, washed his hands, picked up the phone that had no blood on it, and calmly called 911 and then went on the phone with 911. He launched into hysterics in in an acting role. Wow. So the villainy became even more pronounced when Judge Susan Chernowski testified that not only had she and Mick been planning a future together, that they had also had sex on Sunday, August 15th, after Mick and Leanne had returned from their celebration dinner at Outback Steakhouse. Oh, my God. She had paged him like late in the night after he was already home from that outing and he went over there for a quickie and he told her, he did tell her he had been out with Leanne. He did not tell her they had been celebrating a pregnancy and he made love to her that night, the night before he killed Leanne and told her that he loved her. Oh my God. So unsurprisingly, the judge ordered that Mick Fletcher would be going to trial. So mixed trial began in June of 2000, and it was a nail-biter. Tom Henderson devoted like 220 pages of this book to just the trial. So I'm going to sum it up as best I can, guys. If you are really interested in this trial completely, I would highly recommend the book A Deadly Affair by Tom Henderson. So let's get into this trial. So the prosecutor opened with sharing the motive behind the murder, an unplanned pregnancy with his wife that would have permanently ended his affair with a judge from a prominent family. So it's kind of like, not only is this emotional and sexually motivated, it also is another judge that he'd be on the bad side of if she found out about this pregnancy. They said that he panicked and came up with this diabolical plan. So, of course, he then suggested that he teach Leanne how to shoot a gun that he had bought more than a year earlier, and he never before that day had ever taken Leanne to a gun range. In fact, she had never been one to one in her life, and he personally had not ever taken that gun by himself to a gun range. This is very bizarre behavior. He then talked her into a quickie before picking up Hannah. Leanne went into the bathroom, washed her hands, and the couple had sex, and then the prosecution claimed that while Leanne was still on her hands and knees with no pants or underwear on, Mick cruelly and callously shot her in the head, killing her instantly. The prosecution contended that the forensics would be on their side and prove this theory to be correct. Defense attorney Brian Leggio told a very different story. He pointed to the sweet card that Mick had given Leanne the morning of the shooting as evidence of Mick's love for Leanne and excitement for the new baby. He said that they left the range early because they were so into each other and so excited about the reconciliation and baby that they just wanted to have sex. However, he says a tragic accident occurred. Mick was loading the gun in the bedroom when Leanne came out of the bathroom and Mick needed to use it. He asked Leanne to load the last bullet into the clip while he was in the bathroom. Then he heard the roar of the gun. He ran out of the bathroom to find his wife on the floor in a puddle of blood. Mick then called 911, who requested he feel for a pulse. There was none. And then to leave the room, which he did. Leggio went on to say that the police rushed to judgment and failed to properly investigate the accident. So he's kind of saying that this whole, like, I saw Jackie on a JFK special is bullshit. That's not police work. They immediately rushed to judgment and did not actually investigate this as a potential accident versus a homicide. Okay. Furthermore, he would go on to say that the prosecution had brought up the fact that there was this blowback blood mist on Mick's shirt sleeve And this was not able to be confirmed through DNA as Leanne's blood, which was true. I guess the spots of blood were so small that they had been too small to lift DNA from. But it was proven to be human blood. And he's also saying there's also there's another like reason for this, too. Like, this is not a smoking gun, as the prosecution would like to lead you to believe. Refuting the state's forensic evidence would be the central theme of the defense. So to that note, one of the first witnesses for the prosecution was the medical examiner, Dr. Dragovic. Dragovic discussed his medical findings, including the angle at which Leanne would have had to shoot herself, which was perhaps not completely impossible, but highly improbable. Like I said, in order to make a scenario happen in which she killed herself, she would have to be arm completely outstretched and firing with her thumb. Yeah. So difficult. It's so difficult. He just said, you know, yes, maybe you can make it possibly work through weird diagrams and stuff, but is it likely? Absolutely not. Yeah, so Leggio picked apart Dr. Dragovic's narrative like question by question, pointing out that Dragovic was discussing stippling as evidence, but he didn't know what kind of gunpowder was used in that gun. He also didn't know if Leanne was right or left-handed. Leggio also hammered Dragovic about why Leanne's hands weren't bagged at the scene and why there was no autopsy photo of Leanne's right hand. If he is going to say part of his evidence is that she didn't have any blood on her hands there needs to be an autopsy photo of her hand without blood on it you know yeah and he's like is it possible that there was blood on her hands at the scene and then they had somehow gotten clean by the time they got to you for the autopsy and he had to admit like maybe they had done a gunpowder residue wipe that could have wiped away some tiny little bits of blood okay So he's kind of like picking apart his whole testimony and causing that, you know, reasonable doubt. Uncertainty, yeah. Uncertainty. And even, it's really funny because like in these situations when you're like dealing with a medical examiner another expert witness and, you know, you're the attorney on the other side, they can get kind of contentious, you know, and even like a little adversarial because they're trying to prove one thing and the lawyer's trying to prove another thing. But Dr. Dragovic later was like, man, he is a good defense attorney. I did not know him before, but I have to say I am now a fan. <laughs> oh my God. Hilarious. Like he didn't even know ill will. Like they were kind of like seemed like they were going at it at the, on the stand. And then afterwards he was interviewed for the Tom Menderson book. And he's like, what a great defense attorney. Good guy. Solid man. Big fan. <laughs> Next, Gloria, Leanne's mother, testified that Mick was a shit husband and that she knew immediately that Leanne's shooting was no accident. And at this point, Leggio is, like, basically trying to make it look like Gloria was this vengeful mom with an axe to grind and wanted Mick to go to jail so she could have custody of Hannah. But, yeah, duh. If you 100% believe that this man killed your daughter, of course you'd be angry. Of course you'd be testifying what a shit person he was because you obviously felt like that before even the shooting happened, you know? Yeah. yeah. I don't think any points were awarded for that one. And like, yes, of course I want custody of my granddaughter. Like, I didn't I didn't ever want custody of my granddaughter. I wanted my daughter to be alive and raise her own daughter. But seeing as her dad shot her mom, of course I'm going to adopt my grandchild, you know? So Susan, of course, had to testify to prove motive, and it was just terrible. I mean... <laughs> She had to read these like romantic emails and think about it. She was like crying and kind of her voice was cracking while she's doing it. She's around people she works with. She's yeah. a judge and she's around other judges, other attorneys. Apparently, the investigators like knew her because it's all in the court system. So she's around all these people that previously all looked up to her. And now she's on the stand having to read these super cringe love emails And admit that she had an affair with a married man also while she was married for some part of it. Yeah. It's super gross. So here's an example of some of Mick's emails to her, which Susan had to read out loud on the stand. You mean more to me than I could ever articulate, he said in an email. It had been sent to her offices in the 37th District Court. A fleeting glance from you can move my soul. You are my pretty lady for many reasons.
0: Oh, my God. My pretty lady.
1: She read another. I am here for you, Susan, and everything you are. I miss you already. I'm so anxious for the day when I never have to say that again. That's my hope for the future anyway. I don't need to remind you how much you are loved by me. Keep that lovely little chin up, pretty lady. I miss you. I can't wait for the day when I never have to say that again. Susan is, he said, a creature of true beauty, gifted with the sweetest spirit. So, Prosecutor Townsend then had Chernowski detail her on-again and off-again affair for the jury from A Deadly Affair. Here's what she said. Somehow, each time he left her for his wife, even on the day her divorce became final, Chernowski forgave him. So, they were planning a life together, and literally, she's like, let's celebrate that my Divorce is final. We can be together. And he's like, actually, I'm getting back together with my wife. She was like, wow. Yeah. So this guy was a terrible husband and even a terrible mister.
0: Uh huh. Terrible boyfriend. Yeah.
1: Terrible boyfriend. For some reason, though, she kept forgiving him. In June, they resumed their sexual relationship and would continue to meet three times a week for the rest of Leanne's life. Wow.
0: Ugh. That's
1: a lot. It's a lot. It was a lot, especially when Leanne was totally under the assumption that everything was getting better and even got pregnant, you know? Yeah. So, Susan was willing to forgive him everything and anything except except that the last time Mick moved back with his wife and the judge after a brief stint of restraint decided to resume their sexual relationship. She made him promise that he was no longer having sex with Leanne. She could tolerate anything but that. And so Mick had promised and promised and promised. Whenever it came up in those post moments or otherwise, Mick would continue to deny it. He said, if you were a fly on the wall, you would know there's nothing between us. I'll stop seeing you if I find out, she told him again and again. That's my bottom line. Do what you have to do for Hannah, but I cannot and will not stand for you having sex with both of us. So, Prosecutor Townsend asked her, if you had known Leanne was pregnant, would you have stayed in the relationship? And she said, no, absolutely not. I didn't think anything was occurring. Yes, he might have slept in the same bed with her, but I did not think that there were any relations. And then they had her outline the last evening that they were sexual together the night before he shot Leanne. Oh, my God. So next up was Lieutenant David Woodford, a forensic blood spatter specialist who had determined Leanne's position at the time of the shooting was on her hands and knees. So in establishing that Woodford had the credentials to be certified as an expert witness, Woodford revealed to Leggio that his information in this specific case was gleaned mostly from a book on blood spatter by a professor Herbert McDonald. At this point, Zagia was just like, no further questions. That's great. He's certified as an expert and like could not stop smiling. Later, the book described it as he nearly creamed his pants when he found out about this. Because guess who the defense blood spatter expert was? That's right. It was Professor
0: Herbert McDonald. What?
1: Yeah. So it's just too good to be true for the defense because they're presenting a totally different forensic case. So they have one guy on the prosecution side saying, yeah, I know that this is correct what I'm saying because I have this book I used. This is my my study. And the guy's like, yeah, but on the other side, we have the guy that wrote that book and he says, you're wrong. Oh, my God. Like, who are you going to go for? You're going to go for the guy who's like, this is what I use. Are you going to go for the guy who wrote the freaking book, you know? So, the prosecution rested and at this point Leggio tried to make some motions. The three charges that Mick had been up against were first-degree murder, though in Michigan they can be found guilty of murder and the jury can downgrade it to second or manslaughter if they want. But he was okay. it was he was charged with first-degree murder. Okay. Also with using a gun in the commission of a felony.
0: Okay. But the third
1: one was for the death of the unborn baby. Yeah. So that one was dismissed because I guess in Michigan law, you can only prosecute if an assault on the woman results in a stillbirth or miscarriage. And neither of Ah. those things technically happened. Got it.
0: Got it. Got it. Because
1: the mother died and subsequently the baby died, but nothing was ever expelled from her body.
0: Yes. Yeah. Yes. So they
1: had to legally technically dismiss those charges. But it was later said that they probably shouldn't have let the jury know that that was even on the table because obviously they can say we're not going to charge him for that, but it still sticks in some people's minds, of
0: course. Oh, Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah, so then he another motion he said was that he wanted a directed verdict of not guilty, but the judge, a woman named Judge Cooper said there was sufficient evidence for the jury to make a call on the remaining charges. So first-degree murder and using a firearm in the commission of a felony were still up on the chopping block, and the defense would have to proceed with their case. So Brian Leggio began his defense, and he brought in the aforementioned Professor McDonnell, who refuted everything Woodford had said and claimed that Leanne could have easily killed herself while sitting on the bed. The photos and diagrams used to show how this was possible were... Like awkward, but they did present a remote possibility. So they basically said she was like leaning over and like grabbed the gun to pick it up, to load it with her thumb pointing at herself. So that was like the position that they managed to, like, I'm doing it right now. It's very awkward. Like she was tilted forward and grabbing the gun off the bed while sitting on the side of the bed and it just happened. No, so the prosecution is saying she was on the floor. The defense is saying that she was sitting on the bed. Okay. Yeah, so they're saying she was on the bed. The gun was on the bed. She reached over, stretched out her arm, and for some reason grabbed the gun facing herself with her thumb on the trigger. So they have a completely different imagining of how this happened. McDonnell also refuted that Woodford's claims that the microscopic blood bits on Mick's sleeve were blowback blood mist. He said it was actually a surface transfer. Now, this could have possibly been from when Mick checked Leanne's pulse. Okay. You know, like that there was blood already present on her. He checked her pulse and he got microscopic little bits of blood on his shirt sleeve. Yep. So the jury is really confused at this point. They have two so-called experts with very different points of view that are telling extremely different stories. And next, Leggio fought to get the 911 tape in. So he really believed that Mick sounded extremely upset on this 911 tape. And that's why he fought to get it in because he's like, okay, the jury's going to hear this and they're going to know that this guy was genuinely very disturbed that his wife was dead. Yeah, but it totally backfired. The jury thought it was completely not genuine and off-putting, and they thought he sounded like an actor. Oh, no. really? Yeah, so this was after that attorney felt really bad, too, because he was like, when he found out later when they polled the jury that the jury, like, specifically did not like that, he was like, oh, shit, because I fought to get that in, you know? Yep. So in closing, Prosecutor Townsend implored the jury to just use common sense. He said, it comes down again to common sense and everyday life experiences. First of all, would Leanne, who hates guns, who is afraid of guns, would she have ever touched it? Would she ever put her thumb into the trigger of the gun? If she's got the clip, would she ever do anything like that? I suppose if we just completely devoid ourselves of our life experiences and common sense, I suppose anything, anything is possible. But is it reasonable? I suggest to you, absolutely not. There was no reason for Leanne to touch that gun and she wouldn't have touched that gun. And then he discussed the blood that was in the sink, which it didn't seem like the defense had come up with any good reason for, you know? Ladies and gentlemen, I suggest to you that if I had gone out and seen my wife or a person goes and sees a wife or a husband lying on the ground that they're bleeding and they don't know if they're alive or dead, don't know the extent of their injuries, the first thing they're going to do is attempt to find out, is to embrace, to cradle, to comfort. I don't think I'd go wash my hands and then decide to call 911. Yeah, no. These are all extremely valid points. And also, it's just because something is possible— does not make it likely, you know, or rational, you know.
0: But they're grasping for that one possible That
1: reasonable doubt, exactly. Leggio countered in his closing that Mick had no history of abuse and was in fact somebody who always chose flight over fight. The evidence being that he kept leaving and returning to both Leanne and Susan. He also refuted the entire motive. If Mick is killing Leanne so Susan doesn't find out that she's pregnant, Killing her would be a very bad way to go out about it. Like, first of all, after the death, everybody's going to know she was pregnant. It's going to come up in the autopsy. Number two, why would his cover story be that they came home for a quickie so they were going to have sex? So if he's trying to kill her so that Susan doesn't know that his wife was pregnant, that's not going to work, really, you know?
0: Yeah, I see that. But ultimately, what's more important is eradicating her. I agree with you completely, yes.
1: But they're like trying to pin that doubt like he's a smart guy, he's a defense attorney. Don't you think he would have thought of that? So he also attacked police procedure saying that the investigators rushed to judgment and the forensics were incorrect. Leggio said also that the prosecution's timeline was too cramped to make sense of it all as well. He said that there wasn't enough time between leaving the gun range to like come home, have sex, shoot his wife, stage the scene, wash his hands, call 911, basically. So they're like, it just can't happen the way they're saying it. So the jury went out to deliberate. And the problem was that they didn't buy either story. Like, they weren't convinced on either the prosecution's version of events or the defense's version of events. So on one side, they really didn't buy the motive at all. Like, for instance, everything I said before, but also why set up the scene to look like they're about to have sex, blah, blah, blah. So they also felt like Leggio was right about the cops rushing to judgment. They didn't like the fact that an investigator was saying, well, I I saw this documentary and it made me think this thing, rather than it being more scientific and procedural, you know? Yeah. So they were like, we got a really bad feeling about that. But on the other hand, they felt like the scenario of her holding the gun with her thumb on the trigger was ludicrous and unbelievably unlikely. And furthermore, nobody liked Mick. Like, they just all didn't like him as a person in general. And they thought he was completely acting on the 911 call. So they're like, okay, we don't have a clear idea, but let's just hold our first vote to see where we're standing about this, you know? Yep. And the first vote was eight for guilty and four for not guilty. After that, led by three engineers who happened to be on the jury, they decided to get out some masking tape and completely recreate the crime scene and run their own imaginary scenarios through this imaginary crime scene. Okay. So one of the juries acted as Leanne and they had the actual murder weapon. It just was unloaded, of course. And so they basically put him in like positions on the bed and tried to see where the gun fell to see if it was possible that she had been on the bed. So this is kind of how I'm going to walk you through what the jurors process was from a deadly affair. So the jury decided that the shooting had taken place on the bed and using the table as a make-believe bed, Bob, one of the jurors would hold out the gun, pretend to pull the trigger, and then he and the gun would fall. Over and over, he did it, and the gun never ended up where it did in the police photos. As Jensen, who was the foreman of the jury, later explained, the crime scene reenactments were a way of taking the backdoor approach. They had unreliable or little forensic evidence in their mind linking Fletcher to the crime. But if they could come at it with inductive reasoning, more proof that they were engineers, and eliminate Leanne as the source of the gun being shot, then, by logical elimination, it would have to be Mick who did it. Yeah,
0: because yeah. there's no one else there.
1: Yeah, exactly. The play acting might cause the rest of the holdouts to see how unlikely that was. Then they'd be left with no other explanation except for the husband did it. So a couple of the jurors weren't even sure that this was legal, though. So <laughs> they actually didn't know if proving that Leanne didn't do it was the same thing as proving he did, you know? Yeah. So they end up writing a note to Judge Cooper And they're like, is it possible to find a conviction based upon the evidence that Leanne didn't shoot herself? And Judge Cooper apparently wrote back, please sit down and just very carefully reread all my jury instructions. So because she hadn't told them they couldn't, they just assumed that that meant they could. So that's kind of how they went at this. After the first day of reenactments, the vote was now 11-1 in favor of guilty. Whoa. Yeah, so there was one holdout at this point for Guilty when they started doing another day of reenactments and literally they could not make this gun fall, no matter how they positioned her where it was. They came to the determination that he had to be guilty and he had to have staged the scene because they just could not make it work with any form of this was an accident. Okay, so now that they have decided that he is guilty of murder, they have to decide whether they are going to convict on first degree, second degree, or manslaughter. Yep. And now they can't agree again. Now, even though the judge's recommendation is that you cannot think of the punishment when you're thinking of the crime. You can only say, yes, this was first degree murder, or this was second degree murder because it wasn't premeditated, or this was manslaughter because it was an accident, right? Yep. And so some people were like, I don't want to give first degree because first degree carries a mandatory sentence of life imprisonment. And I think some of the jurors were still like, I'm 90-10 that he did it and I'm going to vote to convict. But just in case I'm wrong, I don't want him to have life in prison. Yeah. And then other people said that they thought potentially he really did not premeditate this. Like maybe he really did want to take her to the gun range, but then spur of the moment, he just decided to kill her in that moment. I don't think that's likely. It just, yeah. it's too premeditated to go to the gun range to yeah. get the residue on her hands. Yes. Yeah. So eventually they compromised on second degree. So like the the jury foreman said that he really wanted first degree and he thought that that's what they should convict on. But he was so worried that if he didn't compromise and say second degree, that it would be a hung jury and he could get off the next time, you know? Yeah. So they, they say second degree. So the jury foreman goes and they read their verdict. and. I mean, I think Leanne's family was happy that there was a murder conviction, but this was kind of like when you splice hairs, nobody's really happy.
0: Yes, of course.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So obviously Mick Fletcher's family and Mick are devastated. They had actually been very convinced that he was going to get off for this because Brian Leggio did such a good job, that defense attorney. And they presented such a strong counter case that they were completely shocked. Even apparently there was a 2020 film crew with them and the 2020 producers were like, "Oh, we're going to film you guys like going out to dinner and celebrating Mick getting out and stuff." Like that's how convinced they were that that's the direction this case was going in.
0: Oh, how presumptuous.
1: Yeah. So everyone was kind of surprised by this and now Leanne's family, like I said, happy that there was a conviction of murder, but they had obviously hoped for first degree. And and, and you know, Jack said, you know, this is a case where nobody won you know, even though we got potentially a verdict that we wanted, nothing is going to bring Leanne back. There's no, there's no happy day. This isn't a happy day. It's relieving, but it's not a good one, you know? Yeah. Well, in the end for the judge, it seemed like the distinction between the punishment for first degree versus second degree didn't really matter because here's what Judge Cooper said. She said, I've spent 22 years on this bench and I presided over innumerable trials involving all manner of heinous crimes. In all of those years, I have never seen a crime so incredibly cold-blooded or heartless. You killed your wife, who was pregnant with your child. Your daughter, Hannah, will live her whole life without her mother. The jury didn't believe you and the story you told the police, and I don't either. I don't understand what kind of monstrous, arrogance caused you to think that you could get away with murder. I don't have any doubts how to sentence you. It is the sentence of the court that you be sentenced to life in prison. (laughs) She's like, okay, thanks, jury. Thanks for that second tree. That's cute. Bye, bitch. It's my court. (laughs) It's my house. (gasps) Holy shit. Yeah. So he was, he was sentenced to life in prison and it wasn't clear to me, like, if there was a parole option on that because they didn't say expressly, like, LWOP. But I looked him up on, like, the Michigan, you know, Department of Corrections and under release date, it just said life. Yeah, So that would lead me to believe that he is in there for good. Yikes. So... Defense attorney Brian Leggio is still to this day convinced of Mick's innocence. Like he says, I, you know, dear defense attorney, you don't always represent people who are innocent, but he 100% truly believed it. And so did the rest of his legal team. Mick filed an appeal in 2009 based on the jury reenactment saying how they arrived at the verdict was unconstitutional, but the appeal was denied. Mick remains behind bars and I think he's going to be there for the rest of his life. Wow. So Judge Susan was removed from the 37th District Court with pay the very same day that Mick was sentenced to life in prison. She had assigned 64 cases to Mick during the duration of their affair and presided over the cases as well. Whoa. And he had gotten paid on all of those cases. Like, he didn't get work unless, like, she gave him work. She was deciding who the defense attorneys who would re- represent people were. Wow. Furthermore, she had lied to the police initially about the affair. She was eventually suspended without pay in December 2001 for six months, but she did return to the bench until 2003 and is now in private practice focusing on criminal and family law. Author Tom Henderson seemed not entirely convinced of Mick's guilt, I have to say. He wrote later that even some of the jurors questioned whether they made the right decision. In his afterword, he... You know, it's it's too wordy for me to, like, read to you guys. But he essentially said that there's two scenarios and they both seem insane. Like, one, that somebody who didn't like guns and was pregnant would go to the gun range and on the very first time she's ever been to a gun range then be preparing for sex and shoot herself in such a way that makes no sense whatsoever. Like, that is—it's just not reasonable, right? Yeah. But he said, on the other hand— We have a guy who has no history of violence, who, like, wrote her this love note that seemed to be turning a corner with her. And basically, that whole motive question, like, it was obviously going to come out that he was having sex with his wife if he killed her in this way. Why would he do that? What You know, he was like, that, to me, almost seems just as impossible as the first scenario. So he says at the end of the day, you know, the jury made a decision. The judge made a decision. He wasn't entirely convinced that as somebody who was there for the trial, that he was completely guilty. He even did an interview with Mick at the end of the book where Mick, of course, kept saying he was innocent and that there was a rush to judgment by the police And at the end of the day, he said, you know, either Mick is the most evil man or just the unluckiest man in the world. Because think about that. If he really didn't shoot her, this is a morality tale, like, of a biblical level. Imagine this guy's having an affair. He's doing a bad thing. He's had a couple of affairs. <laughs> and then he finally decides to like straighten up his life potentially.
0: But why take her to the shooting range? I don't know. I think that... Why take her to the shooting range? Yeah. And
1: if he really was cleaning up his life, why did he sleep with Susan the night before the murder? Yeah.
0: No. No.
1: Yeah. I can't believe it. I have a very hard time believing it. The book is good. If you guys have any feelings about like, maybe he is innocent. I would definitely read this book. I think very fairly displays both sides and it gives equal attention and time to the Fletcher family and the Meisner family. It's a wild one. And that's why I said at the beginning, some people do not feel like justice was served because there's still a lot of people out there that think Mick was actually innocent. So crazy. So crazy. Okay. Are you guys ready for
0: a Wikipedia fun fact? Yes.
1: (gasps) I can't believe I sing to you guys when I have the world's worst voice every week, but luckily it only asks for like two seconds. (laughs) Okay, so Brian Leggio, the defense attorney in this case, went on to represent none other than famous Detroit rapper Eminem when he was in a hearing for assaulting and threatening to kill a man he saw kissing his wife Kim outside of a Detroit bar. Wow. Yep, bizarrely, Susan was the judge at the hearing. And get this, Dawn Gruenberg, Mick's other lover, had actually been scheduled to be the judge on the case, but she had had to recuse herself because her father had once been Eminem's attorney, and apparently she and Marshall Mathers, a.k.a. Eminem, had grown up together in the same neighborhood. She actually ended up going to the hearing to support him and was like smiling and waving at him
0: during the hearing. Weird.
1: Yeah. So Eminem eventually made a plea deal and he just ended up with a couple years of probation and mandatory drug testing from that event. But that's crazy that three of these key figures were involved in that trial.
0: Yeah. That's insane. Wild. That is a fun Wikipedia fun fact.
1: Isn't that a fun one? Yeah. Yay. It's actually it's kind of, guys, I, I feel bad. There wasn't a Wikipedia on this one. So it's actually just still another Tom Henderson fun fact. I just couched it under Wikipedia fun fact because it's like in that division. And big thanks to our Facebook discussion group for bringing back the Wikipedia fun fact. Love you guys. In conclusion, maybe don't take your newly pregnant wife to a firing range to celebrate her pregnancy when she doesn't like guns or shooting.
0: Yeah. Also, awesome blossoms are so yummy.
1: You mean blooming onions. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know which one it is.
0: Is it blooming
1: onions? We'll see. And we'll see what it ends up being. Either way, they are delicious. I'm glad that you ended on that note because now I want one. So bad. And as always, trust your gut when it comes to love so no one ends up murdered. Thanks, guys, for listening. Bye. Bye.